on this episode of the Creme Project podcast. There were people like the Daily Telegraph mm. who had a big problem with me claiming Queen Charlotte Sophia mm. was a woman of African descent, which is Queen Victoria's grandmother, and also the fact that I had claimed, uh, I put in my board game, that Stonehenge was built by an African culture. Welcome to the Creme Project podcast. Creme is an acronym standing for communicating the race equality message effectively. The project started in 2019 as a collaboration between three of the largest charities in the race equality sector, Race on the Agenda, the Black Training and Enterprise Group, and the Runnymede Trust. The Creme Project podcast is yet another way that we can promote the work of these and other organizations working in the race equality sector. At this particular time in history, with black deaths at the hands of the police, and worldwide demonstrations declaring that black lives matter. Sadly, we have in this country a government that wants to downplay and minimize the presence of institutional racism. At this time, it is all the more important to give voice to those in the struggle. In each episode, we will be interviewing a representative of one of the organizations fighting for racial equality in Britain. But this will not just be a dry discussion on policy. This is about the people behind the campaigning and the experiences that shaped them. So get ready for what will be a lively and inspiring discussion. If you're hearing this transmission, you, you are the resistance. You are listening to the Creme Project podcast. My guest this week is Jack Baula, better known as Nubian Jack. In his younger years, Jack had been a musician, a singer and a model, but he first came to my attention in the mid-1990s when he created the black board game of the same name, Nubian Jack. After his brief career in the music industry in the 1980s, Jack decided to go into social work. It was in his capacity as a social worker with Islington Council that he began to notice what he described as society's neglect of black and working class youth in the social care system. In response, he began to devise an educational program that would try to address these points. And out of this came the board game Nubian Jack, often described as the black trivial pursuit. In 1994, the game was introduced to select outlets in the capital, including Toys R Us, Hamleys of London and Morley stores. And within a few weeks, the game was outselling Trivial Pursuit and Monopoly combined in Morley's of Brixton. Suffice it to say, it became a bestseller in London and Jack gave up his job as a social worker. A few years later, in 1998, Jack self-published the first edition of Nubian Jack's Book of World Facts, subtitled The Ultimate Reference Guide to Global Black Achievement. More recently, he is the founder of the Nubian Jack Community Trust, which since 2006 has been honouring black personalities of the past and also organised Britain's first African and Caribbean war memorial in Windrush Square. Jack Baula was named on the 2020 list of 100 Great Black Britons. So, Jack Baula, welcome to the Creme Project podcast. Hi. So, Jack, you were born in the 1960s in West London to parents who were from Jamaica. Indeed. Um, so, tell us a bit about that. What was that was like growing up in West London in the 60s? Okay, so uh, let's cut to the chase. I was born in 1963. I know you want to get it out there. So, yeah, I was an early 60s baby, and I'm still looking good. I'm still bearing up, so I'm... I'm happy that the people who gave me these genes uh, was my mother and father, surprisingly enough. And I was born in St. Mary's Hospital, mm -hmm. uh, West London, um, on the 4th of July. And oh, you were, yeah, I was 4th of July. July. Yeah, yeah. And growing up in Paddington at that time, it was a very um, multicultural melting pot. There was different cultures, groups, races, um, people all together. And maybe it's because of my age, but I was oblivious to the uh, distinct uh, racial um, identities that each particular group had. So what, what was going to school like? Was it a multiracial school? It was a multiracial school and it was wonderful. Like I said, I was completely oblivious to any differences that we all were. Of course, you know, you're different, you know. But at what uh, age did you realise that 
that uh, oh, I'm a different race to whoever my well, teacher came later. or friend. That actually yeah, when, comes when did later. That, when okay. Did that come? So okay, well, let, let's kind of unpack this a little bit. Um, part of my oblivion, I guess, was I was also brought up in the church. I was brought up uh, quite a strict religious upbringing. Which so, which denomination? Uh, Pentecostal. Right. Okay. A lot of fun. Yeah. Very animated on a Sunday. Lots of, of singing. Lots of singing and lots of language speaking. They go yeah, into speaking this, in tongues. They're speaking in tongues. Yeah. And, uh, and they're convinced that they are, and maybe they are. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I will never know. <laughs> but it was beautiful, and um, it was a lovely foundation for me because the uh, the moral compass it gave me was, you know, basically treat people right. You'll get treated right. Um, you know, uh, respect your elders, love your neighbours, don't steal, and did the basic ten or eleven commandments. Um, the eleven, of course, being um, thou shalt uh, not go raving on a Sunday night, on a Saturday night even. Okay. I, I, I didn't. I, they didn't teach that one in my. I church. wasn't allowed to rave. That's but, the point I'm trying to say. But. Tell us, when, when did you realise that, oh, th- things are not all rosy? Right, so things become a little bit more cute when I go to secondary school. Right. Because I'm also growing up, I'm uh, moving into my adolescence, I'm starting to ask questions. Some of the religious stories are beginning to be, you know, inconsistent in my head. You know, I just couldn't get over like 40, 40, 40 square, 40 square or 40 cubic feet and all these animals all coming into an arc, and that's just one of one of them. And there's lots of stuff I began to think, I'm not sure this is plausible, you know. But it's a very interesting topic because you have a dichotomy because you're uh, programmed to not question these things. So the minute you start questioning it, it really is a mental health trip, Lee. And I'm being quite serious because a lot of my friends who were from that religious uh, community, that religious upbringing struggled with reconciling British reality with biblical um, analogies. Mm. And um, one or two people, frankly, didn't make it. They, Mm. you know, they slipped Mm. mentally from, from, uh, from reality, never to return. Right. So yes, you've painted this ideal, ideal picture of, Nice family life, growing up in multiracial West London. Yeah. But when did you first realise that you were different and maybe you weren't able to access all that this country had to offer as, you know, your parents, as all yeah. that Windrush generation would have dreamed? So while going to school, I'm mixing with different groups. And one of my best friends, if not my best friend at the time, was a guy called Mark Preston. I'll call him, Mark, if you're hearing this show, get in touch. It'd be great to, to see you again. And uh, we were playing a game of had or hide and seek. And Mark, we were 11, and Mark did the old adage, I'm sure you know the rest, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Mm. I'd never heard that. Catch I'd, something by I'd his I'd never heard that. I'd never right. heard the rest of that. And he actually, there was like four of us. In fact, in fact I'm thinking now, I, I know what you're saying, but yes. our listeners may not have heard Doesn't matter. age. Let no, them so, use no, the imagination. Should, no, no, you should say I'm it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. Well, this is a podcast. This, this is not, this this is is not BBC Radio 4. I, I think you should say, let them know what you were shocked to hear at eleven, at age 11. Well, okay, it was any mini, miny, mo. Catch an African king by the by the toe, but they didn't use the word African king. It was denigrated. No. Yeah. You understand? And I was like, uh, excuse me? And this was a common nursery rhyme, playground right, rhyme right. at that time. Yeah. Well, there was a rule in our school, an unsaid rule, because like like I said, it was a clash of cultures and we were all this hodgepodge of melting, melting pot. And you're young, you're 11. Mm. You do come with preconceived ideas, but you're 11, you're still pure enough to not be, su- you know, sun, uh, uh, solid solid by... You know, but did but, it, so did this result in a fight between you no, and your best friend? No, it didn't. What, how, how? It resulted in me being like, "What are you talking about? You know, what was that? Why? Why do you do that?" And him reevaluating the nursery rhyme on a visceral level. Honest to God, I'm not being romantic here because he just said it as a joke, right? Yeah, and and knew what he was talking about. That's yeah. why he was laughing. But when he saw the effect it had on me, uh, and it was like, of course, it's going to have an effect because the N word is a strong word. And um, so, yeah, um, that's when I first became aware of the, the, the harsh reality of, of what I'd later understand as racism. And that So was, did you do well at school or not? I did. I'm going to come on to that. I was very, I was bored at school because I didn't find the lessons. Right. I wasn't disruptive. 
I was very popular. I used to play the piano in, mm. I think I mentioned this to you before, in assemblies, mm. which I did because I always wanted to be a musician because mm-hmm. that's what the church gave me. Um, but when it came to my exams in the fifth year, which is the equivalent of year 11, I did my O-levels and I passed. Uh, they wouldn't let me do maths O-level, so they made me do what was called CSE. Mm-hmm. And I got CSE grade one. And I remember coming back in the sixth form and there was like, Johnny, Johnny, you got you you put you got an O level in maths. And I tell you, Lee, I was offended. I was like, Do you think I'm stupid? You know, and to be honest, when I was doing it, it was so easy. It was so easy. What it is, I didn't extend myself at school because I was always gonna be a musician. I was always gonna be a star in my own head, right? Mm-hmm. So I just school was a place to socialize and have fun and and um and yeah, I um, but sorry, there's one thing I did miss about miss out, and that was we went for the dreaded careers. Yeah. Uh, um, meet the dreaded careers officer, and I remember her telling me, um, "You should be a fruiteer or a fishmonger." I don't know why she chose those occupations, right? Fruiteer. I think I used to sell fruits uh, at uh, Baker Street um, when I was younger. I had so many jobs, by the way. I was always an entrepreneur, always working. So I used to sell. I used to pack powder in um, little tubes and in Labra Grove and sold that all to make both of my money. I used to do paper rounds on a bike down the West End. And one of them was, I remember in Paddington Street, I had to sell fruits. So she mm-hmm. must have advised me to be a fruit here because of that. Mm-hmm. But um, I was offended. I was like, okay, we'll do the bleep here. We won't, we won't, you know, we won't go into the proper vernacular. But um, yeah. So amazing. What, what did you want to do then? At the age of 16. Okay, so no, the careers office wasn't at 16. It was maybe 15, late 14, 15. But I, my grandmother wanted me to be a doctor. So I was, I was going along. They asked me, what would you like to do? And without me thinking about what a doctor it takes to be a doctor, I said, I'd like to be a doctor. And they course, said, nah, try, laughed, try being yeah, a fruitier. Yeah, exactly. But the, the sad thing is, I've heard so many stories similar from my contemporaries, and even today, this is what I find disturbing. You've got children today who go to school, who are particularly from a cultural group, racial group, perhaps a class, a particular uh, class uh, standing, and they're told they're reduced. They're told not to aspire or it's going to be difficult for them to fulfil their ambition. However unrealistic it was for me to be a doctor at that time from the education, I could have been encouraged. Mm. I could have been told, okay, if you want to be a doctor, these are the things you need to do. Yeah, you need mm. to do your physics, A-level, chemistry, A-level, biology, A-level. You're going to have to go to university. You're going to have to not... I wasn't given that chance to fantasize or even dream, which is a proper word. I was uh, told it couldn't be done, mm. but I never believed it. And guess what? I'm a doctor now, although Dr. Jack is not quite the same. <laughs> you are listening to the Creme Project podcast. So it says in your biography, yes. becoming disillusioned with the music industry. Yes. Jack decided to go into social work. It was his capacity as a social worker with Islington Council that he began to notice what he described as society's neglect of black and white working-class youth in the social care system. Yeah. Not only did it appear as if care staff were ill-equipped to deal with the demands of young people, but some of the young people were adopting subcultural stereotypical behaviour. Yeah. Jack put this down to, in part, their educational experiences as well as a lack of positive role models in both media and their immediate environment. Yeah. Noting that there were hardly any multicultural resources available within their homes. Yeah. So he began to devise an educational program that would try and address these points, out of which came the Nubian Jack board game. Yes. So tell us about that, Jack. Okay, so um, I have to quickly say, it would be remiss of me not to say how I actually got there, and I'm going to be very brief. So I had a musical career. I was managed by Bob Marley's manager, Don Taylor. I worked with Jazzy B, George Michael Seal, and I spent 10 years in the music industry. And yes, I did get rather disillusioned because I had always wanted to be a, a superstar, pop star, and I voted the kid most likely to be famous in school. And when that didn't happen, I started to teach children, young people, music uh, as a youth worker. And then I wanted to get qualified, so I then went into social work. And that's how that journey from musician to, 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 to a, a social worker arrived. Now, while working as a social worker, I was given mainly predominant black clients. Uh, and, you know, working class clients, mainly black kids, let's be real. And um, they had a particular swagger. I, I was very easy to relate with them. 
But I noticed the stereotypical role models that they were aspiring to me. So their trousers were halfway down their, you know, backside. Uh, they uh, spoke with a street lingo, which was great to, to, to sort of catch up on, really. Um, but I realised their role models were very, um, were basically musically inspired and, mm. and gangster inspired. And so I wanted to give them an alternative. And so with them, and this is an important thing, with them, we did an educational program starting to look up uh, black role models. And we put that in a game and that game became Nubian Jack. And that changed my life. Uh, and hopefully it's changed a lot of people's lives because it allowed them to learn about some of their role models because you've got to put, you know, you've got to, you've got to let them be able to identify it. But then I was able to throw in the Marcus Garveys and the two black queens of England and the African-American that invented the mobile phone and the traffic light and the African-American that invented the ironing board and et cetera, et cetera. And that just blew their mind. And that journey's continued till this day. So that was released just in time for Christmas 1994, yeah? Yeah. yeah. So the game was introduced to selected outlets in the capital, including Hamleys of London yes. and Morley stores. Yes. Uh, and this coincided with Christmas marketing campaign on the radio station Choice FM and The Voice newspaper. Mm -hmm. And within a few weeks, the game was out of stock, outselling Trivial Pursuit and Monopoly combined in Morley's of Brixton. So the Morley's chain, there were three shops. It was Morley's, Brixton, Selby's of Holloway Road and, and, and the Smith Brothers in Tutin. And it was sold out, sold out in all of them? Uh, it was a I produced a thousand games and all thousand games and sold out after Christmas. By Boxing Day, gone. So did that make your fortune then, Jack? Not quite, not quite. But it, where, where did it take you to? It took me to the interest of the BBC, mm -hmm. who had heard about that on Choice FM and The Voice, talking about this new phenomenon called Nibi and Jack. And they then put me on a show called The 11th Hour. By the way, I hastily done a reconvened run of 3,000 games, then went on the show called The 11th Hour. And the, 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 the myth of Nubian Jack was born. The phenomenon was born because suddenly I was introduced to mainstream uh, press. And it was like, oh, my God, a black board game, outside entry of pursuit and monopoly. How so? What is it? Who's the guy behind it? Oh, my God, he's so good looking. Anyway. So you took it to America as well, yeah? I did. So when did it launch in America? Uh, it launched in America in 96. It uh -huh. was February 96 at the Jacob Javits Centre. And you, you launched that at um, that was the New York New York Games? Toy Fair, the New yeah, York Toy, Toy Fair, Toy yeah, Fair yeah, yeah. which again was another success, unprecedented success. And did you, so that did, obviously you've got, if you're talking about black people, you've got yeah. a much larger market, well, Correct. whatever race of people you're talking Absolutely. about, in America you've got a much larger market. Yeah. So did that bring you... Uh, Fame and fortune? Exactly. Nope. No, my ta the tax man is listening. We have to re 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 rephrase our questions. Did it bring you uh, uh, a, 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 high, a high profile? <laughs> yes. We, did you we invite on Oprah Winfrey? I wasn't. Funny enough, you, you, we speak in jest, but I was managed by five people. I was managed by a consortium of five people, and yes, they promised me Oprah Winfrey and fame and fortune. And I got a publishing deal with Harper Collins. And that was 2001, yeah? That was 2001. Yeah. So based on the strength of the board game. Oh, so hang on, yeah. So your publishing deal. So for our listeners, you also produced a book. I did. Nubian Jack's World of... Book, book of, of World, world Facts. Facts. Correct, yes. Actually, that's very important to mention because what happened is when you produce a board game like Nubian Jack, people begin to question the authenticity of the facts you're producing because not only... People don't have a problem with who's the king of pop. They don't have no problem with that. Mm. They don't have no problem with, uh, you know, who was the first uh, girl group to have five consecutive number ones, like the Supremes. No mm. problem. But the minute you start saying... Uh, black Queen of England. Two Black Queens of England, mind mm. you. Or you start saying, uh, you know, a black man uh, invented the fridge, John Standard, or, you know, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et mm. People then want to know, well, where do you get your facts from? Did you get quite a bit of pushback? On those kind of things. Okay, what I did get a pushback from, I didn't, because, okay, the black community, the people of African heritage were really excited that suddenly there was a game that was beginning to popularise, you know, our achievements. Um, but there were people like the Daily Telegraph mm. who had a big problem with me claiming Queen Charlotte Sophia mm. was a woman of African descent, which is Queen Victoria's grandmother, and also the fact that I had claimed, uh, I'd put in my board game, that Stonehenge was built by an African culture. Oh, my God. If I could be hung, dried, and quartered, they would have done that to me. I was put on page three and said, down with Nibi and Jack, down with political correctness. It's page three of the, of the Telegraph. Tele because you suggested that. Because I suggested in Nibi and Jack some of the facts that, that were presented in the board game. Uh, 
obviously inveigling our young, um, uh, altering the minds of our young, um, and giving them a false sense of history. And how dare I claim the sacred space of the um, of the uh, Stonehenge being built by an African culture? I've lectured about that, and I've said that's really interesting because everywhere you go around the world, constructions like that are usually African uh, uh, influenced. Stonehenge was built by an, a pre-British culture. Where do you know before the British were here? Before the English arrived, they only arrived in the sixth century, by the way. Africans were here before that, but Stonehenge was built three thousand or four thousand BC. BC. Now England and uh, believe me, the so-called Druids uh, didn't have the knowledge to erect tons of uh, megaliths and create them in. And anyway, without going too much into detail, I read David McRitchie. I read Godfrey Higgins. These are historians that attested to the fact that Stonehenge was built by an African civilization, and this fear isle was inhabited by Africans. Thousands of years ago, up in Scotland, up in Ireland, the Fearbolg, you know, the Black Celts, these things have been conveniently erased, or let's just say they're not discussed. Mm. And so Nebian Jack's uh, mission was to bring that to the public for, and let's have a conversation. Let's conversate. You are listening to the Creme Project podcast. Well, so you were doing that. Um, well, that was the, the, the mid to late 90s. And yeah. it's a debate that's still going on now. Indeed. We're talking about decolonizing the curriculum, yes. etc., And also monuments, which I want to come back to. Yeah. So, we, so that kind of brings us to, so the work you've been doing more recently yes. in the last decade yes. has been Nubian Jack Community Trust. Yes. So tell, tell us about how that, why you right. started Right, so what that. happened was, um, I, I, I'm going to go from chapter to chapter and in, in its proper segue. What happened was I bit off more than I can chew with America. So I got ripped off. Mm -hmm. In terms, I, I got a book deal, which is really wonderful, but my board game was still selling and I did a massive production run and I sold it to a, uh, I sold a whole batch to a reverend in Brooklyn. I won't mention his names, uh, Mr. Reeves. I won't mention his name. Anyway, <laughs> um, he went out of business. And went out of business with thousands of my board games. And I realized America was uh, too, uh, a nut too hard for me to crack. So I then came back and I started, I actually fell out of love with producing board games, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And I founded this organization called Nubin Jack Community Trust, which began to memorialize places and spaces with plaques. Yes, rather like English heritage. heritage in fact, blue plaque. In fact, that's how it started. I was headhunted by English Heritage while working with the board game, and they wanted me to highlight the black plaques that they had done, black and Asian plaques. And at the time, there was six black plaques and nine Asian plaques. So when was this? What this was 94. Okay, so no, this no, was no, 2004. 2004. Like, uh, 2004, yeah. So English Heritage approached you yes. in 2004, yes. and they wanted you to highlight the black plaques they that they already to produce, done. They wanted you to produce, their word was, we want you to uh, make your community more accessible to our plaques. Right, more aware, because so, so at that time there were six... There were six plaques to people of African heritage. There was actually five. There was five plaques to African heritage and nine to people of Asian heritage. And I was going to launch my programme with their six, which was Sucile R. James. If you, if you look it up, you'll all see it all um, aligns. CLR James plaque was done in 2004. And I launched a CLR James plaque with a London treasure trail of all these plaques, black and Asian plaques. And it again increased my brand, but it also made me uh, uh, interested in the work of public realm. And at the end of that treasure trail, I said to English Heritage, do a plaque to Bob Marley. He's a great person that would... Uh, galvanized the black community and they didn't have the capacity to do it. They said it would take a long time. Why don't you do it, Jack? Mm -hmm. And they helped me form the Nubian Jack Community Trust in 2006. Uh, with, the, with the idea of just doing that Bob Marley doing, plaque? Or I was going to do the first other plaques, of a series. but that was the first of a series. And that became a phenomenon because just, I'm perhaps I'm a little bit lucky like that. My first plaque to Bob Marley my first plaque to Bob Marley was filmed by the BBC for a documentary called Arena, 30 Years On, and they showed it the following year. So this was October 2006, and they showed it October 2007 to highlight 
30 years of Exodus being released, Bob Marley's Exodus. Right, yeah. And that vid doc- documentary was a documentary an hour and a half went around the world and a whole documentary featured my plaque. Every time a Bob Marley track was played, they'd show part of my plaque ceremony. And where is the Bob Marley plaque? It's in Ridgemont Gardens, number 34 Ridgemont Gardens. And, and why that building? That's the first place he lived when he came okay. to London in 72. He was done by Johnny Nash. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, so if I've got a list of some of the ones you've done here. If you run through them quickly, sure. you can say kind of why they're significant, sure. why you decided to put a plaque there. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> 2008, you did Claudia Jones. Yes. Why is she important? Um, it's funny. When I was doing this plaque concept, there were several people I really wanted to do. Phil Liner. <laughs> from uh, Finn Lizzie. Finn, from, from the Finn Lizzie, oh, you know. Okay. Um, Laurie Cunningham. Uh-huh. Claudia Jones. Uh-huh. You know, so I'm just giving an example. I, there was 10, 10 people I wanted to do, and she was one of them. Because she's extremely iconic. She's arguably the so most... So for those who don't know, why is she... So Claudia cool? Jones um, is... Um, she was so badass. I hope you keep that in, badass. She was so badass, Trinidad wouldn't let her back. In t- the place where she was born, Trinidad said, no, we don't want you here. You're trouble. Uh, and to give, those, give a context, she was a Marxist in America at the time of the McCarthy... Um, just after the war, of course, she was a black pan-Africanist and a threat to white supremacy. So England said, we'll take her, and it was our benefit, to our benefit that she came over here. She produced the first black newspaper, weekly black newspaper over here, uh, West Indian World. She uh, helped to organise the Notting Hill Carnival, or really helped to organise Caribbean Carnival in this country, the mother of Caribbean Carnival. She is um, a pioneer to do race relations, and she is a monster. And that's why I've given her three plaques, not just one. Um, the next year, 2009, you did Kelso Cochrane. Yeah, so Kelso Cochrane was the original Stephen Lawrence. He gets murdered for being in love with some, some white uh, lady one night he's going home he gets attacked by um three racists and they murder him stab him and kill him this is uh, in west london this is in west london this is on um goldborn road where i used to live ironically i'd just like to uh, give a footnote to that story as he laid there dying it was three white folk that came to his aid actually uh, and his last uh, uh, uh breath was uh, held in the eyes of sympathetic uh, people, so we have to always be careful that this never gets sucked into the madness that is racism. But it's, what's interesting with him is that even though he didn't, he had no role in organising the Nottingham Carnival. He didn't exist at the time he was yeah. murdered. Mm. It was the context of these racial attacks that were happening in West London at the time. Yeah, that was the inspiration for the carnival, wasn't it? Many Trying people to... get that. Uh, there's a historical narrative to that. that some people get slightly. Um, they conflate Kelso's death. No, what happened was the Notting Hill riots of 58. Right. The Notting Hill riots, Kelso gets murdered in 59. The Notting Hill riots of 58 were bank holiday, mm-hmm. 58. August bank holiday, 1958. Uh, black folk in Nottingdale, or Notting Hill as we now know it, uh, were being attacked. And they thought, nah, bruv, you ain't gonna, you ain't gonna do that. And they came out and gave the black shirts a bloody good hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Claudia Jones, in her wisdom, said, very famous line, we need to get the taste of Notting Hill out of our, our mouths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It wasn't a riot, it was an uprising, it mm-hmm. was a resistance. And so what happens is she then does the very first Caribbean carnival in this country in January, uh, January, um, where are we, 59. Right. And Kelso gets murdered later in the year, 59. Okay, yeah. all right. So it wasn't his death. It wasn't was his death, okay. no. Okay. The, the, the carnival is a result of the riots or the yeah. uprising of 58. Right, okay. All right. Well, thanks for that correction. Because okay. I thought that I his death was Lots part of, people, of the, no, no, the inspiration no. for the riots. But it's in the same area. Yeah, yeah. Well, same era yeah, and within correct. a year of each other. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, okay, so another... Um, Stain on our on, on our history in this country uh, mm. is uh, New Cross Fire. Yeah, you, you erected a plaque to that in 2011. I did on the 20th anniversary uh, on the uh, 2011 1980 the 30th anniversary. Yeah, is that yeah yeah is that right or the fourth? I think yeah, it was the 30th because we just had the 40th this yes, year. Correct. So yeah, yes, 30th, so 30th 2011. Absolutely, stain is a strong word. I don't know if it's a stain, but it's a well. A, just bring up to speed our listeners who are okay. not familiar with the details. That's a very interesting question that you asked because a lot of younger people are unaware of the Notting Hill. Uh, on the New Cross, um, New Cross Fire. Fire. Yeah. yeah, 439 New Cross 
uh, road, uh, and uh, where 13 young people and subsequently one later uh, died, uh, we thought it was only right, 30 years after that tragedy, to erect a plaque to uh, accentuate and memorialise A, those deaths, but B, uh, the, the, that, that space. Because until now, nothing has ever been done, said, uh, and uh, rectified about that travesty and tragedy. So, yeah, so just to, just to clarify for those who don't know, that was, um, there were 13 young people, teenagers, yeah. at a birthday party for, yeah. I think it was a 16. It was, 16 yeah. year, year yeah. old birthday party, and 13, they were caught in a house fire, and 13 died um, in the fire, and one died uh, about a year Subsequently later. Subsequently later, yeah. yeah Where is exactly is the plaque? 439 New Cross the, Road, the actual on building. the actual house, on the actual house. What, what? What is that building now? Is it's a it... house. People live there. People it's live still, there? Yeah, people live there. I'm amazed anyone would want to live in a house where 13 people burnt to death. We don't, yeah. Well, life isn't, it's not the same house, one. And we don't know how many houses we live in which people have died. And so it's not the... So the actual, because you know, we're having a similar debate now about mm. Grenfell, aren't we? Yes. What should be done with that building? Yes. Should it remain? Yeah. Should it be torn down? And knock so it that, down. So that house was rebuilt... No, and... it wasn't rebuilt. It was renovated. It's still the same house. I'm amazed. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still, still the I mean, structure's still the same. It still, it still has the same architecture as the, all the other houses around. There. And there's a plaque on on that. And there's a blue plaque building, on right. it to there. To what, what's is it? Just regular people living there now? Is it? Yes. Is it, it's, it's, yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's, Did you uh, have to? So I presume you had to have a conversation with them. And no, I didn't. Because I think the, the property is owned by um, Lewisham Council. Right. If I'm not okay. mistaken. So you got the permission from the council. Lewisham. I must say that plaque is very interesting because that would be in my top five plaques of all the 65 plaques I've done because that was the biggest plaque I've ever done in mm. terms of the turnout. TFL closed the road down and I had everybody. Mm. I had the Black Police Association, the Black Firemen's Association, mm. the, the, all, all the different associations and the different ethnic uh, components as well as, you know, the police were there and, and it was amazing. Mm. It was amazing. Um, at that particular day, without going too much into it, the debate, the, the existing narrative about what really happened mm. was aired for the first time, which I'm not going to do on this or on this on this podcast. But um, it's a uh, something that has yet to be resolved. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It, it was just recently we just saw a documentary on it, uh, BBC. Yeah, Stephen uh, Queen. Yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, the argument was that the, the people who thought it was an arson attack mm. by racists, because mm. there was a lot of those happening in the area at the time, mm. Mm. Uh, and the. Uh, the um, inquest had an open verdict. So yes. Perhaps it was a, a fight broke out inside the party that caused the fire. But yeah, as you say, that's a that's a, a we'll different leave that way, yeah. the, um, the most important thing is just let's just say this: everything about the attack or, or the, just the inquiry afterwards was racist, mm. regardless of how the fire starts, because nobody knows. There's two schools of thought, which, like I said, you've just articulated those. Everything that happened after was a result of racism. The Queen, sadly. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, even. Uh, somebody died, I think there was a fire in Ireland. I don't know if you yeah. remember that, a week yeah. later. And she went there and, you know, yeah. and there was less people that died. Yeah. And she went there and laid her wreaths and and and, uh, and, and, uh, and flowers. But the 13 young people in the capital, yeah. nothing. Yeah, 15 and 16-year-olds burnt in yeah. the fire, yeah. Mm. So you said that was one of your top plays. It would what, be in my what, top five. What would be the other, some of the other Okay, so... Um, Okay, so I've got the plaque on the Foreign Office. Okay, commemorating would, what? Uh, commemorate Ignatius Sancho. Right. So that would have to be up there because uh, you it's the only black plaque in Whitehall. Right. So you walk in the middle of Whitehall, you go down the Foreign Office and bang, there's a plaque there. It's like, how could we get away from this guy? <laughs> anyway. um, and we've also got one to my personal hero, Malcolm X. Oh, most certainly. What, what's the story, with that, with the that story of that was, um, that wasn't in my top five though, but you've just... Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, well, Malcolm is, an, I mean, Malcolm is in my top five as a human being, mm. the wonderful, amazing Malcolm X, Amawali Malcolm X. Um, it was when he visited Smethwick and he was trying to desegregate housing. Do you remember? At the time in the 60s, 1965. In fact, it's 11 days before his assassination. Right. So he, he does something which he never lived to see, and that was desegregate the whole, because uh, he comes and he starts to speak with the, uh, community, Asian and African community, and they vote for um, the the Labour um, candidate, and he gets in, and the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. So he, not a lot of people know that he he was playing a role in 
British yes. domestic politics yes. as well as the yes. inadvertently it must be said yeah inadvertently. Um, mm. Bernie Grant okay an amazing Bernie Grant the British Malcolm X arguably um, not much to say about Bernie other than what a wonderful amazing man who's deserve another plaque and we put a plaque on his surgery or well, his surgery used to be not too far from here We've also got one to Stephen Lawrence. Where's that? Stephen Lawrence is at the Stephen Lawrence Centre. Right. Um, I, I did that on the 20th anniversary of his passing as well. And um, we wanted to put it, uh, we had a choice of places, but as you know, the spot where he was murdered mm. um, has constantly defaced mm. and the plaque there's been defecated on and all the rest of it. And we thought, nah, that's not going to happen with this one. So we put it on a uh, a part of the on the outside of the institution, which is the Stephen Lawrence Centre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also have one, can I talk about my five? I have the largest blue plaque in the world. The largest blue plaque in the world is in West London, uh, and it commemorates 70 Notting Hill Carnival Pioneers, and that's one of my favourites as well. Yeah, uh, that was in 2018. Yeah, that, that was in 2018. Yeah. 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 Um, you've also got one to... Um... Choice FM, a radio station. That's I do. Just, that's strange to have a plaque for Not a radio really, station, isn't it? it I was, thought it had to be people. No. You, no? Do you commemorate events, mm-hmm. people, individuals and groups? And it was me going full circle because Choice FM, as you just read, uh, read earlier, was one of the reasons why the whole Nubian Jack thing took off anyway. So on the anniversary of their broadcasting, which was the 31st of March, 1990. See, I'm, I'm like a... Yeah, like you're a, very good with yeah, these Yeah, I just remember yeah. these. Yeah, we, we erected a plaque. We wanted to do it last year, but because of the lockdown and stuff, we couldn't do it as a 30th anniversary. Oh, wait, yeah, I just, you did that this year? We did this year. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, and for I our wanted... listeners who don't know, Choice mm. FM is the forerunner to what is now Capital Extra. Indeed, yes. Yeah. On the same frequency, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, any other favourite plaques? Um, yeah, out? a plaque to Septimus Severus. I put a plaque to Septimius Severus who was an African-Roman emperor. I put that on Hadrian's wall, no less. Mm. And um, that was to commemorate um, him being stationed in York in the first century and leading an African uh, regiment uh, that protected Britain from, from, the, from the invading Celts from Scotland. Can you imagine a black guy? <laughs> uh, by the way, he's, this is really, I have to mention this, at the time, he's a black Roman general. There's no notion of black and white as we know it today. Mm. It's not that. Mm. It's just that you're a darker shade of pale. I'm a lighter shade of pale. Mm. I'm better looking than you. You're not. And that's how it just how it was. Mm. And people just because the 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 insidious mythology mm. of dehumanizing and and having to authenticate why people are dehumanized yeah. to steal their resources hadn't yeah. yet. Yeah, taking place. yeah, they hadn't invented yeah. the, the racial it's, hierarchy. Correct, yeah. correct. Um, okay, now the, you've also got um, two quite large, they're not necessarily plaques, but statues or, or yes. tributes. Uh, so one to soldiers in, is it both World Perfect. Wars? Perfect, yeah, well done, yes, exactly. Uh, both World Wars, mm-hmm. which is in... That's on Windrush Square in Brixton. It's yeah. the only uh, monument of its type in the UK to honour African and Caribbean soldiers who served in both World Wars. You're absolutely right. And then more, most recently, one to the nurses... I thought it was only right to be also honour the women. And now we have a statue outside Whittenson Hospital, which was erected three weeks ago. I designed it. It's seven foot high, seven foot wide. I'm a genius, you know, bro. Shoot. Uh, but these statues and these, all of these board games and stuff are really just music. I'm really a frustrated musician. So my creativity, if I can't produce these pieces of art musically, I find another way because creativeness is a blessing and a curse. You cannot contain it. So if I was in prison, I would be making matched up men. You know what I mean? Mm, or mm. whatever, you know. Um, so, um, yes, this statue is wonderful. It's seven foot high, seven foot wide to represent the seven decades of um, the African and Caribbean service to the NHS. It's made out of 16 pieces. One and six is seven. Get this. Every one of the pieces are structured to a number divisible by seven. But why did you feel that it was necessary to, to have a statue to nurses? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, we, we're used to war memorials. And so, you know, um, Commonwealth, members of the Commonwealth, as it, as it, well, it still is called that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the, it was the empire back yes. then, yeah. um, who fought for this country, weren't being recognised. So that's, 
that's natural, naturally understandable. But why a tribute to nurses? I'll tell you nurses? why. Because we have just come out of a war. In fact, we're still in a war. We're in a pandemic or pandemic or where there's certain some sort of uh, battle we are having with um, different forces without getting too much into that. But as a result of the contributions of all nurses, but in particular the black nurses, who again, sadly, because of whatever reason, structural inequalities and all the rest of it, were the largest casualties, as we know, in, in the pandemic. So I felt it was only right that, because they've been self-sacrificing for seven decades. Do you know what that's like, Lee? Mm. To go to work and being told, get your dirty black hands off me. Mm. You know what I mean? While you are doing your job, mm. you are, again, being othered, being reduced, you know. And they did it with such class and non-resentment. Non and I thought, let's honour them. And you've also produced a book about that, haven't We've you? We've done a wonderful book where Her Majesty the Queen has written the introduction. It's called Nurse in a Nation. And that includes um, accounts from some of the nurses that are currently serving, some retired historians, experts, um, people who uh, are knowledgeable on nutrition, people who are knowledgeable on medicine. It's a wonderful potpourri uh, of, 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 um, of articles, mm. which is, a frankly, a book for a generation, Nurse in a Nation. And for Her Majesty the Queen to write the introduction, that tells you something. How did you manage that? How did you pull that off? Well, uh, as, as we got started, contacts in the palace? I, 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 um, as I mentioned before, I may be up for a gong. I'm not going to take an MB. I deliberately said that because you're going to edit that bit anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I might do that. Um, no contacts, Lee. I, we, we wrote to her and Her Majesty complied by writing a, actually a beautiful letter, which is the, forms the basis of the introduction to the book. You are listening to the Creme Project podcast. Right. Well, okay. In the few minutes we've got left, yeah. just bring it all together. So we've talked okay. about all these black plaques. We've yes. talked about the, the, the contribution to this country that um, those from the Caribbean and Africa have made. Yeah. Um, we're, we're in the middle of a culture war now. Right. Since, you know, Black Lives Matter of last year. Yes. We've been having these debates about statues. Yes. We've had the statue to Edward Colston in Bristol pulled yeah. down. Yeah. We've had the statue of Churchill defaced. Yes. Churchill was a racist, is what right. on there. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're having a debate about statues. So what's your take on all this now? As somebody who likes, who, who's designed statues, erected statues yourself. Yeah. Um, what, what, what do you think about Colston and, and Churchill and what's been done to those statues? Yeah. I think it's really interesting that we're having this conversation at this time because the, we are approaching this subject from different points of view. Say, for instance, it's very hard for folk who are not, uh, experiencing or haven't had the experience of being a minority in this country for them to understand the reaction that a statue like Edward Colston and the significance its symbolism means because for them it could be just ornate could be part mm. of the the uh, architecture of the of, of Bristol yeah where for somebody who uh, has uh, experienced colonialism uh, you know, um, imperialism, and comes from a family who many, many generations before were enslaved people, the statue has a different resonance. Mm. And it's hard for people to understand that. So let's go to Churchill. Churchill came to our need in our greatest, greatest hour of need, allegedly. And let's be frank, he did a bloody good job in World War II. Mm. He certainly did. Um, the part, the story they don't add is the people who contributed to that, which is what we just spoke about with the statue and the contributions from people from Africa and the Indian subcontinent, etc. We won't go into that for now. Churchill has a track record of racism which needs to be questioned because he was voted the number one Black Britain, uh, number one Britain, yeah. the number one Great Britain, mm. Winston Churchill, um, which is fine if you look at him through rose-tinted gardens. Glasses. What do you think is the right way to deal with these then? So statues to people who whose views were perfectly mainstream and normal at the time. Mm. So Edward Colston, he he traded in slaves. Yes. That was perfectly legal and accepted yes. at the time. Yeah. Um, Churchill expressed racist views, which yes. were perfectly mainstream at the time. Yes. Now we look back and we're condemning these people. Cecil yes. Rhodes. Yes. Um, there's a statue to him on in is Oxford or Cambridge? Oxford. Right. Oxford, yeah. Horrible. So these people were 
you know, members of the gentry, yeah, the, the ruling elite, yeah. the establishment mm -hmm. at the time, and we're now looking back and, and condemning them as racist. Yeah. Do you think, like, like the statue with Colston, it should be pulled down, there should be a plaque on there to contextualise it, it should be put in a museum? What, what, what's the best way to deal with them? So I can only give one view. My view really doesn't matter. Okay. No, Maybe, it does matter because you're the guest in this podcast. I, I, so. I do understand, I understand. Okay, so sometimes it needs to be contextualised with a plaque to explain. Sometimes people are not ready to take Shakespeare, uh, um, Churchill down. Mm. Colston needed to go. So a plaque wasn't a plaque on, no, on the base of no, his statue would no, not be enough. No, because this was a man who traded in human cargo, traded in flesh, unashamedly so, and there had been calls for him to be removed. So it didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't just a Black Lives Matter movement and the white folk in the crowd decided to, to pull it down. No, this is a topic that had been generated and debating for, for, for years. And it took that reaction to show people that one has to go. Mm. And there's a few others that's going to go. So what about Cecil Rose? Cecil Rose is going to go. Yeah. He's going to go. The only reason he hasn't gone is because he's up there, out of sight. He's up there. Yeah, so they can't reach him. They can't reach him, right? Yeah. So he's he's safe for now. But but why do you think they have to go rather than just having a because, plan to contextualize, okay. explain? So their there role? are some people who um, represent evil. Mm. Cecil Rhodes, uh, millions of Africans died at his hands. Millions for him creating that railroad the from form, the, and the formation of Rhodesia. Right. It's mm. uh, and not only that, he wanted to go from uh, the top of a. Uh, 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 um, Africa to the bottom of, he, he, you know, he created uh, the roads that would lead to the top of uh, Africa, uh, to the, to, from the, top, to the north to the south of Africa. Of course, South Africa was his uh, minefield, literally. Mm. Um, and he, he, you know, he made a lot of money in gold mm. and, uh, and so forth. But I'm talking about the lives that mm. were lost due to him. Okay, you can say a few thousand people have benef benefited from the Rhodes Scholar, right? Yeah. That man is a symbol of evil. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, there are people who, there's a lot of symbols. I mean, you've got about five or six former Lord Mayors in London who enslaved, you know, deal, deal, dealt with enslavement. But they don't have... Hang, the, hang on, we've got five Lord Mayors. Former, 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 former Lord Mayors, right. all deceased, of course, right. but their statues are in, in the capital, right. around the capital. But Cecil Rose is a particular despicable figure of, of um, capitalism, and African subjugation, mm. and I'll use a emotive word, of, of evil. Mm. So he, he gets to go. Churchill? Okay, so Churchill now is worth a debate. Right. Because if I had my, my way, <laughs> and he goes me gone, I would pull him down too. Right. But um, He's you, not quite as evil as Cecil Rhodes. Oh, no, he's not quite as evil. As, and he also did some good yeah. in terms of he took on... Uh, the might of fascism. Mm. Uh, although England at the time, this is the, everything's nuanced. England at the time were cuddling up with uh, with with Hitler. Mm. You understand the uh, our former uh, king of this country. Mm. So there's always little nuances. Anyway, when the tide turned and they invaded Poland, and we went to war, Churchill uh, stepped the breach and did a fantastic job. So for so him, for him, a plaque. For him, a plaque should go there, yeah. and we should let the world know and let tourists know. Great man he was as a wartime leader, but this was who he was as a human being. Mm. Uh, he had racial issues that we should not uh, exclude when summing him up as a character. So just to look at the whole scene now, I mean, just last week I saw a statue um, erected in Wales to um, the first black head yes. teacher. Yes, I saw that. Um, uh, are you thinking that things are going in the direction of travel is... You're liking where it's going, that we're seeing our contribution better reflected now? I think that lady was an amazing pioneer. Mm -hmm. And I think any work in public realm that honours amazing pioneers, I've got to be frank, regardless of colour, is something that I would support. I think her statue is only the fourth statue to a black woman in this country. So guess what? you got, uh, you got uh, it's fifth actually, you've got uh, the black... Uh, uh, the black woman statue in Stockwell. You've got Mary Seacole. You've got my statue or the statue. In fact, let me do it the right conjugal order. You've got a statue to Kelly Holmes. Okay. Right. Then you've got my statue or the statue to black nurses. And then you now you've got this. That's not enough, is it? Mm. So, so, so to, to, to 
to put things right, do we need to pull down some of these evil men, erect, uh, acknowledge our contribution, a bit of both, contextualise? What, what, what do you think? Okay, you're getting everything... me on thorny ground now. What I will say is this. We actually don't know what the climate is here. There's a lovely reawakening with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's beautiful because what it is doing is equalising. Uh, we were invisible and Black Lives Matter was saying, look, Black Lives Matter, you know, and all the different areas in which Black Lives Matter has been addressed. But Black Lives Matter until we had a penalty shootout. Mm. And when we, uh, when the three brothers missed, you saw the real uh, visceral what's underneath, the sub subtext of what's going underneath. But then again, we have to balance it because although it's always there, that's what I mean, we don't really know. Remember, Britain are very good at hide, hide, hiding its racism. It's very good at hiding. So it would say those statues should be there and we should put a plaque to them, you know, put a, put a plaque on them to contextualise them, which to me doesn't always cut to the grain. It's like, it's almost like appeasing us by putting a plaque there. Why don't you take it down? Why don't you take, why is Rhodes still there, Lee? I'm actually asking you. Why is Cecil Rhodes there? This man has killed well, tens of they, millions of people. Didn't he use his money to build half of uh, the university? Okay, so here's the thing. Same like with Colston, he built half of Bristol, didn't he? His, his, the money he made from slavery. Uh, this is it. But that doesn't mean that you can't historically correctly analyse them and say, you know what, it's probably best in a, best in a museum. It doesn't mm. mean you can't, he's dead, he's gone. You can't have a symbol of evil because it's just very difficult. And I just think that um, uh, we are surfing a reawakening and we're having a fantastic discourse and narrative uh, countrywide. But I'm not so sure uh, unless things like Nubian and Jack really become institutionalised, that the next generation won't be the same. I'm not so sure. Black football have been abused for, since, since Walter Tull. And just last year, no, it was this year, just three or four months ago, they've been abused. Something doesn't make sense. That's all for this episode of the Creme Project podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about what we do, you can go to our website at www.cremproject.org or check out our channel on YouTube. So, until the next episode, the struggle continues. If you're hearing this trans transmission, you, you are the resistance.